name is Bob Hurt, and welcome to the Baseball Doesn't Fall, Far From the Tree podcast. For this episode of our podcast, The Baseball Doesn't Fall, Far From the Tree, we will be talking with Doug Flynn. Doug played from 1975 to 1985. He was signed out of a tryout camp by the Cincinnati Reds. He played for the Big Red Machine as a utility player on both its World Series teams in 1975 and 1976. He was involved in a trade that brought Tom Seaver to the Cincinnati Reds and gave him a chance to be a regular for the New York Mets. He won a gold glove at second base in 1980. Doug also played for the Rangers, Expos, and Tigers. His dad played second base in the Brooklyn Dodger organization. His mom was a second baseman in fast pitch softball. He sang with the Oak Ridge Boys and his wife Olga was a former Philadelphia Eagle cheerleader. Welcome to our podcast, The Baseball Doesn't Fall Far From the Tree. How are you this morning? here in Kentucky just looking out the window at a beautiful day and thinking about uh, trying to go fishing. How's that? Oh, okay. What kind of fish do you think you're going for? Bass or? Oh, oh yeah. It's all bass fishing. This is uh, all fresh water around here. We have largemouth, smallmouth, uh, and that's what I normally like to fish for. So, yeah, it's a pretty day and maybe this afternoon I'll be able to work some of that out. Okay, great. All right, I'm going to start, like I said, a lot of these questions uh, we've spoken in the past uh, might seem very familiar. Um, I want to start off by, I read that your dad played professionally in the Brooklyn organization, and he was also a state senator. And uh, wasn't there another uh, Major League Baseball player that was a senator that played played in the Major League's uh you know, you know who I'm talking about, right? <laughs> he, was, he was pretty good. I think he's in the Hall of Fame. Of course, speaking of Jim Bunning, I assume. Yes, yes, exactly. Yeah, and he was a he was actually a a, a U.S. senator. My dad was a state senator in um, 1968 to 72. I was still in high school. Uh, but he loved it, and I don't know why he ran, because he had so many other things he enjoyed doing, but he was such a people person. Uh, and you're right, he had played a year in the minor leagues with Brooklyn. They had a team, Class D team, down in Hazard, Kentucky, and he played with Johnny Padres and had a good year, but they they wanted him to, you know, of course, I think Dee Lee Reese was playing in front of him, Right. So they wanted Dad to stay down for another year. He didn't do it. Came back, started raising a family, and uh, got involved in a little politics. And after that, he was also a councilman for 12 years. He was just such a people person. It felt like he wanted to help people all the time. You know that that's what you know. Doug, that's what we need nowadays. We don't have the public servant. Your dad. Your dad seems like the definition of a. You know, he's a people person, but a public servant and. Uh, I think that's something that's missing, uh, you know, in in our government or politics nowadays. But uh, I agree a hundred percent with you. You know, because it's not supposed to be a job that you make a. I, from what I understood, the way this country was founded, it wasn't a job that you were supposed to go and become rich and benefit from. It was a job where you were gonna. Uh, you had your normal job, which my dad was an insurance salesman. And then you were there to help your community and help your fellow man. And I'm like you. I think it's absolutely ridiculous that people now are full-time politicians. They've chosen that as a career, and uh, they've become very wealthy in doing so. And, uh, yeah. I'd love to see some term limits myself. Yeah. No, I, I totally – I. you're you're preaching to the, the choir there with that. <laughs> <laughs> um, I figured that. I also read that your dad played for the Lexington Hustlers. Now, wasn't, I I also read that he was the only white guy on an all-black team. Could you expound upon that? Well, they first started, they had a lot of amateur baseball going on around that time. They had what was called the Bluegrass League here that Governor Chandler and a lot of very good athletes played in. Some went on, Woody Fryman, to play in the, the major leagues. Uh, but at that time, 
dad uh, couldn't find a team to play with, so he and a lot of his friends were African-American. And they said, Bobby, we need a second baseman. And we're having some guys come over to try out today. If you're interested, he went over and tried out. Uh, they were a very good ball club. Uh, Luke Johnson had played with them some, I think, when he came through town. Uh, Bill White uh, had played with them some. And so they would go and play against a lot of the all-black teams. And, I, and Dad never thought anything of it. You know, right. He wasn't trying to break any color barriers. Just He wanted to play on the best team around here. And that best team happened to be the Hustlers. And they would play against the Indianapolis Clowns, who, of course, were the Harlem Globetrotters in basketball. And uh, it was just a beautiful thing. And I still remain friends with a lot of the kids and grandkids from that era. But uh, they, they all had great names. Like there was Beaver, Dam, Rayson, and Phil Dooley, Barry. And I said, Dad, do you have a nickname? He said, yeah, they called me Snowflake. <laughs> <laughs> so, so you got to see some of the games then, I guess. Oh, you're too young. That's why I, I kind of figured that, you know, that might have been. Yeah, this was like in the late 40s, early 50s. I was born in 51. So, yeah, I didn't really get to see any of them. I don't remember. I just heard all the stories from all the guys that were a part of that ball club who were around uh, this era and this area and lived here, raised their families here. But, of course, all those guys now, my dad's 94, and most of them were around the same age. Wow. That's incredible. Now, yeah. now uh, I understand in high school you were a uh, a three sports star. What was your favorite or best sport when you were in high school? Well, I was not a star, oh. um, and, and I, I mean that in all sincerity. I was graduated from high school at five eight, one hundred fifty pounds. I played basketball, baseball, and football, but I was far from being a star. I happened to be on a lot of, you know, pretty good ball clubs. And, uh, I had my role in football. I was a quarterback. Uh, we didn't throw much. We had a, mostly a running team, so I handed off to a fullback that went on and played 10 years in the NFL uh, with the Philadelphia Eagles. So that made my job pretty easy. And baseball was a second baseman, never hit very well, but was good defensive. And then basketball, point guard on a team that our junior year, we won four games, and then our senior year, we went 23 and six. Wow. And one point, one point away from going to the high school state tournament. And we were just a bunch of little guys that played hard. No three point goals back then that certainly would have benefited our team. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, I was so uh, average, Bob, that I had no scholarship offers coming out of high school. Um, so, you know, I was a guy that could be on a team, and I, I wasn't going to dominate or make uh, any great, great plays. But I was a solid player, and I enjoyed competing. And I think that was probably one of my <clears throat> best characteristics is that I wasn't afraid to compete at any level. And so, yeah, coming out of high school, I really didn't know what I was going to do. Well, I also read that you went on to the University of Kentucky. And you played baseball as a freshman? Um, well, um, the I got a call one day from the basketball coach in Kentucky. He was a freshman coach then, Joe B. Hall, who went on to be the varsity coach after Coach Adolph Rupp. And he said, Doug, uh, we had signed five guys. Our point guard that we signed had signed the contract with the Cleveland Indians. So they were getting ready to start school. I didn't know what I was going to do. Um, they said, we need a point guard on this year's freshman basketball team in Kentucky, and we would love for you to come do it. So I went there with the idea that if I didn't make it basketball, I was going to get a baseball scholarship. Still hadn't grown any. I was still 5'8 and 150, and our freshman team was me, and the other guard was 6'4, and then we went 6'7, 6'8, 6'11. And every single day of that year, we scrimmaged against the number one team in the country, which was, uh, they had Dan Issel, Mike Pratt, uh, a lot of really great athletes on it. Mike Casey, they were ranked number one in the nation, got beat by Jacksonville that year. So you're talking about a growing up year, being my size, huh? to compete against the number one team in the nation every day before we had our own practices. And it was an unbelievable growing up year for me that helped me as far as competing at a higher level. 
Kentucky always had that reputation for being a hotbed for uh, for basketball. I mean, with talking about the people you mentioned, I mean, you know, it you know it certainly was. Um, yeah, yeah so, they had a, you know around here. If you grew up, that's what you wanted to do: go play ball at Kentucky basketball. So there were very few guys at that time that were signing professional baseball contracts. So when you look around and you see guys that you think are pretty good players and nobody's coming knocking on their door to be a professional, you realize, well, maybe it's just not possible. Uh, so you didn't give it a whole lot of thought around here. You know, you know what I was thinking about? it. You got Kentucky, which, you know, obviously was a hotbed for uh, for basketball, and just north of you, Indiana, too, you had the Hoosiers, you know. Never really thought yeah. about that. It seems like that was, you know, like the Bible belt. You had the basketball belt. Yeah, it, it, you know, it was very good. Ohio was very good at the time. Ohio State had some good programs going on then. But uh, Pee Wee Reese had signed to play professional out of Louisville, Kentucky, around Lexington. Um, Lou Johnson was one of the few players decided to go ahead and play professionally. I think Cotton Nash was a great basketball player in Kentucky that signed with Minnesota for a brief time, but, you know, you never grew up, you saw it, you watched guys play, but you never really thought that that was in the cards for you. Strictly because all these great players that you had seen in front of you or who you were super great never really went too far other than to go to college. You know what, I I didn't ask before, but I, I generally, when I you know, speak to my guests. I always ask, who was your baseball influence? Who got you started playing baseball? Would it have been your dad or, you know? Yeah, my dad, my dad, my uncles. I had some uncles that were really good. I had some great uncles on uh, my mom's side of the family who were outstanding ball players. Uh, one of them actually went away two weeks with the Cardinals uh, and then got homesick and came home and said he'd rather work on the farm. And of course, they weren't paying anything at that time either. Oh, yeah. But my dad, I remember as a small child watching my dad play. And I used to think, you know, he was playing against these young kids. And like, why is my dad out there competing against these young kids, man? Because he's so much older. In reality, dad was only 30. <laughs> I was five or six and going to the ballpark with him. And at 30, you know, he was in his prime playing in the Bluegrass League. And I remember he was really Now, your your mom also was a pretty darn good player, from from what I had read. Yeah, she uh, was a good fast pitch softball player, played second base. Okay. Uh, they didn't have slow pitch back in those days, so and she also was on the first all ladies basketball team at her high school. They used to go around and play against some high schools, but they would play against a lot of independent teams too back in those days. So she was a very good athlete. Yeah. Now it's it's funny that the uh, I guess you had no uh, no choice but to to play second base because your dad played second too, right? So your dad and mom were both. I mean, maybe that was uh, genetic or something. <laughs> I reckon because you know on my high school team we had a shortstop that was really good. His name was Mike Belker, and he was a very good ball player. I thought he had potential to go be an outstanding college player. And, you know, he had good speed, he had a good arm, good range. Uh, he decided to go play basketball in college and then sort of gave up baseball. Uh, but, you know, second became pretty natural for me, although in the minor leagues I played shortstop. Right. Uh, when I got to the big leagues, I played a little short, third and second. But second was always the most comfortable for me. It may have been because of those influences, although I never really went out to uh, said, Dad, you know, walk me through some different ways to play this. It was more or less just, you know, watch somebody, learn, and see what's best for you. Yeah. Um, okay, I mean, you know, what I was going to say when you said about, uh, like, shortstop, I, I had told you before that I was, you know, a, a big Pittsburgh Pirate fan. I don't know if you read about the kid they just brought up, uh, uh, O'Neill Cruz. He's six foot seven. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Oh, he's awesome, Doug. If you get a chance to to see him, I mean, I think he's gonna. 
Um, he's going to make a big impact, but they're, they're also talking about eventually he'll probably become a corner, you know, quarter outfielder, but yeah. you know, he, he likes playing shortstop and I mean, he's, he can field and he can hit, but, uh, six foot seven, I'm thinking, cause I'm the same size as, well, I was the same size as you in high school, five, eight and 150. So this is somebody that's like, you know, a foot taller than us almost. Yeah. And, and play. When Cal Ripken came into the game, you know, most of the middle infielders in my era were somewhere between five nine and maybe six foot. Uh, if you were six one or two, you were considered a big middle infielder. Right. And so now, though, the game has changed so much. I mean, my playing weight was one sixty eight to one, you know, never over one seventy. Well, good night. That's that's true. Absolutely. Um, oh yeah. You know what? Uh, I read about how you got your your start with the uh, with professional baseball. Apparently, you and some buddies went to a Cincinnati Reds tryout camp. <laughs> yeah, I was going to junior college, and I wasn't playing any ball. Uh, well, as far as school goes, uh, I was playing doubleheader during the summer, doubleheader baseball, uh, baseball games in the Bluegrass League. And then at night, two or three times a week, I was playing some slow pitch softball. And a guy would drive 70 miles to pick me up, bring me back to Lexington and play on their softball team and drive me back to college. So, um, uh, some friends one morning, about 8 o'clock, there was a knock on the door and said, the Reds are having a trial, can't let's go. And I went, all right. So I didn't have my, my stuff. So I borrowed a glove and a pair of shoes from one of the guys that picked me up. And we all headed over to this little softball field. And they said, you go first. So they really had no intention of trying out. They had seen me mature. I'd grown a little bit, started maturing. My arm was getting a little stronger. And uh, these guys said, they woke me up to go, so I went to the first tryout camp in Somerset, Kentucky. Right. Then I went to another one in Frankfort, Kentucky. Then I went to one up at Riverfront Stadium, and then they came back to Lexington and tried me out again and said, what would it take for you to be a professional ball player? And I said, broken a hot dog, I don't know. <laughs> they gave me, yeah. I was just ready to try it, you know. School, I was having fun at school, but, you know, it looked like I was and, and I all. I actually had agreed or verbally agreed to go to a school down in Tennessee to play basketball. And as it turned out, uh, the Reds signed me for $2,500. And then <clears throat> three years later, was in the big league. Wow. Wow. Now, um, how many years did you uh, spend in the minor leagues when you signed? Three. I uh, started with... Uh, Started in rookie ball, then they moved me up to class A ball the same year. Okay. And I played double A ball, triple A ball, and in 1975 made the team out of spring training. Okay. Now the rookie ball was that the Appalachian League that you played in? No, it was it was it, it was really just in Florida. You just kind of stayed back in those days. Uh, rookie ball meant you just kind of stayed right there because they didn't know what to do with you. Oh, okay. <laughs> I spent two weeks in Florida, um, and then a third baseman for the Class A team hurt his leg and had to have surgery. So my manager, I was playing shortstop, he said, can you play third? And I said, yeah, I played there in high school, <laughs> which was not necessarily the truth. So they bring me up to A-ball, and the manager keeps saying, no, back up, don't move in, not get over. The inning was over with, and he said, you've never played third a day in your life, have you? Now went over. <laughs> and he said, why would you tell him that you played third? I said, because it was a chance to move up the ladder from rookie ball to A ball. And he liked me and kind of got my corner. His name was Russ Nixon, a former player. He was my first man, full manager in class A ball. And he kind of, he liked me and, you know, kind of really encouraged me to continue to play. And, and uh, I'll always, you know, he's passed away now, but I'll always be grateful to him for that. Now, Russ was a catcher with the Reds, wasn't he? He was a catcher with the Indians. Oh, the Indians. With the Reds and the Panthers, too. 
Oh, okay, okay. Um, yeah, he was a little bit older than me, so he managed the Reds team for a bit, and as well as the coach there. Uh, one year we won the World Series. That's right, right. Okay, that's where I I made the uh, the connection with Cincinnati was that you know when he was managing up there. Um, yeah. Now, uh, this is kind of, I found it uh, comical and stuff, but uh, how about telling our listeners about the overrated eight? <laughs> that was a good story. <laughs> well, you know, when you make the big league team, you're excited, but the team I happened to be a part of uh, <clears throat> was the Big Red Machine. So the Big Red Red Machine had eight players that if you read anything about the Big Red Machine, they basically only talk about eight players. And they were called the Great Eight. So one night, uh, not too many years ago, they were doing the statue of Joe Morgan. And to honor him, they brought in the starting eight guys. And that was Pete Rose, Ken Griffey, Joe Morgan, Johnny Bench, Tony Perez, uh, Dave Concepcion, George Foster, and Cesar Geronimo. So my job as the MC of the night was to bring them up on stage. So thought I'd have a little fun, bring them up on stage, and there's four or 500 people, and they're on their feet clapping. And I said, there they are, ladies and gentlemen, the most overrated group of players in the history of the game. <laughs> and everybody's looking up at me like, what are you talking about? I said, all right. I said, let's do a little history lesson. In 1970, those guys sitting right over there got beat in the World Series by Baltimore. I said, in 1972, those same guys got beat by Oakland. In 73, the Mets beat them. They didn't even get out of the league. 74, they disappeared. Then this little country boy from Kentucky makes the team. They win the World Series. The next year, little country boys back. They win the World Series again. And then in 77, they trade the country boy away and they don't win again. You do the math. <laughs> some, some guy in the back of the room hollered, the glue. <laughs> so uh, I've had some fun with that. I had t-shirts made to say the glue, uh, 75, 76. And uh, all of our proceeds go to help Hope for the Warriors, which is a military charity that I, Johnny Bench and I have been with now for almost 20 years. And we've used those shirts and stuff to raise a lot of money for charity. So we're uh, for military vets and their families. So uh, I'm, I'm kind of proud of that. And I uh, just had some fun with the guys. Of course, that grade eight uh, was as good a starting lineup as there's been in quite a while. And we went back to back world championships. And after we won in 75, uh, 76, we just coasted because there really was a lot of pressure on that ball club to win. They were becoming the best teams that never win it. But after we won in 1975, we just cruised in 1976. And, boy, just some great people on the team. But, you know, my, my lessons about being a pro ball player came from guys who were, they were superstars, but then there were other guys on that team who weren't going to play every day. And reminded me that I probably was just going to be a utility player and play only when somebody got hurt. I will always be appreciative to guys like Bill Plummer and my buddy Daryl Chaney, who I still stay in touch with. And guys like that who taught me, be ready. Uh, this is your job. Don't be envious of those guys that are playing every day. They're really, really good. And we're just blessed to be on a ball club like this. So here's what your role is going to be. And when you get a chance to play, you go in there and play hard and you play well. And so uh, I'm very thankful for those learning lessons early in my career. No, I, I totally agree for uh, agree with you that, on that. And, uh, you know, I was going to ask you who your role models were, but, you know, I had spoke to Daryl, you know, a month or so ago, and he had said that uh, you guys were very close. And uh, he, uh, I guess, I don't think he said it, but he was kind of like a mentor to you. I mean, you both guys were... Utility, yeah. you know, infielders, and you know, I know uh, a lot of the things that you have just talked about about being ready and everything. I know Daryl was so so. The apple doesn't fall far from the tree with with the two of you guys. But you know, <laughs> you know he was Daryl starting shortstop, you know, before Concepcion got there, right? And, and he 
and there was there was a really good player, a really good athlete. He had a chance, I believe, to go to Notre Dame to play quarterback. Yep. Uh, for the Irish, so uh, yeah, he, he, you know, he was never jealous if I played more. He was just such a good person that he helped me get myself ready. Uh, we would go out to dinners afterwards. We'd hang out in groups back in those days. There'd be four or five of us that go out to dinner. You know, he just taught me to be a professional. And he still teaches me things today. You know, we're very close friends. We stay in touch. Uh, he and his wife, Cynthia, are dear friends. Their kids are all grown. And, you know, I'm, I'm thankful there was somebody like that that early in my career could set me on the right path. Oh, yeah. He was, he's, you know, talking to him and, you know, he was definitely impressive. So I can, I can agree with everything you just said. I mean, absolutely. Um, I'm going to talk now. I'm going to move over a little to your, uh, your, your career and different points to, to ask you to expound upon. But, um, uh, do you remember, and I'm sure you do, but I, I like to, hear your answer. You remember your first home run off of Dick Hall, right? It was actually off of Tom Hall. Oh, that's right. You said that before. I didn't, I didn't cha uh, change it on my sheet there, but I, and I remember telling you, <laughs> I, I remember telling you on baseball reference, they referred to it as deep to left field. Yeah. Uh, Marty Brenneman said hammer. <laughs> that's the only time that ground when you were going around the bases? <laughs> I think I got around probably faster than anybody that's ever got around. <laughs> no home run <laughs> trot, huh? Yeah, you know, I, I don't pimp, you know, I didn't get very many, so you don't pimp them at 165 pounds or 100, what I mostly, between once, I didn't have a lot of power, so, but I hit that ball good, and uh, I know I got around there quick, and I think a couple of guys in the dugout had passed out, so it was a little different. Oh, that always that always makes it better. <laughs> now, um, you talked about the Mets. Did you hit it or, or no? Uh, Hall wasn't with the Mets, and I was up at Montreal. You said, or I forget what you just Tom, said. Tom Hall was with. Yeah, we, I was with Cincy, obviously, and Tom Hall was with the Mets. Oh, okay. Uh, he had gone over. Yeah, so he came in to pitch against his former team, and. and uh, yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah, because you said that Seaver had started. Okay, but you were traded to the Mets. What What do you feel is uh, more satisfying or better? Uh, feels better to be on a championship team or or a chance to get to play regularly? I mean, with the Mets, you definitely got a chance to play a lot more. I mean, was there? Yeah, I got spoiled. You yeah, know, we win the first first two years, so the championships are already take care of. Right. And now you want to play, you would love to play every day. And I, I knew it was going to be tough to play there in Cincinnati with, you know, you got a Hall of Famer, I think two Hall of Famers in Concepcion and Morgan playing in front of you. Right. So I get traded and, and um, first thing I want to find out is who's playing in front of me. And it was uh, Felix Miana, Buddy Harrelson, and two excellent, excellent ball players. Uh, but both were a little bit older than me, so this might be an opportunity. And, uh, but I was also in a trade with three other guys for Tom Seaver. Right. Tom being the franchise, the most popular player to ever play for the Mets. And it was tough. Uh, 
when you go up there to New York because you're trading for the franchise. You know, the fans are loyal to a fault. Uh, if you play hard, keep your mouth shut, which is what I did. Uh, you could endear yourself to a lot of the fans, but man, when you got rid of Tom Seaver, it didn't matter who was in that trade. We were going to take a lot of flack for quite a while. Yeah, I was. I well, I I live or I grew up in in the New York area, and and I'll agree. I mean, people were not happy when they got rid of Tom Seaver. I mean. You know, between the general manager and Dick Young, the writer, I mean, you know, yeah. that helped orchestrate that. But, uh, yeah, I know that had to be tough. About it, Bob, Tom was going to go somewhere. I mean, it was just a matter of where he was going. Because after the Dick Young article, I think that's what Tom said, I'm out of here. And it was just a matter of where he was going. So why would he not want to go to a team that had won a back-to-back world championship? And so he picked the Reds to go to to throw to Johnny Bench. But what the Reds had done over that offseason, they got rid of Tony Perez. And Tony was, uh, I, I likened him to the Dean Martin of the Cincinnati Rat Pack. You know, you had Frank Sinatra in there. Well, that was Johnny and all those guys. But you had to have a Dean Martin, too, that would keep everybody loose. And that's what Tony did. He kept those guys loose. He could get on them when nobody else could. He could make them laugh. Uh, he could pick them up. And, and he was a great RBI guy. So, uh, yeah, when they got rid of Tony, so now Tom comes over to them. He does throw a no-hitter when he was Cincinnati. Uh, but me and Pat Zachary and Stevie Henderson and Danny Norman were the four guys that went over the trade. Stevie had a great career. He played 12 years and hit about 280-something. And Zach was a really good pitcher until he hurt his foot. Danny Norman didn't quite make it. And then, of course, I was there and got to win a gold glove and and, uh, and uh, played every day at second base and shortstop, played a little bit everywhere. But, yeah, it was a rough transition, but it's one that I'm very thankful for because, as you said, I did get a chance to play every day and play for Joe Torrey. Yeah. No, that was those, I remember those. I, I watched you play on uh, on Channel Nine W O R. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, those those were the Kinder's Corner sometimes at the end of the game. Yes, Kinder's Corner, and being and being a Pittsburgh fan, you know, I mean, of course, I I don't remember uh, when Ralph had Kinder's Corner at Forbes Field, but I I do. Uh, you know, my dad explained it to me, and you know, I. I watched the uh, show religiously after every game, you know, because he, you know, I, what did they give you when you were on Kinder's Corner? I forget. It wasn't much, right? They give you a watch or anything like that or a gift? Oh, no, God, no. I don't know. Maybe 25 bucks or something. It wasn't much. Yeah. And, uh, and, it, and I, I want to say it was a gift card, like, to something, uh, or $25 off or something. It wasn't a whole lot. But yeah. You wanted to go on there because... You know, it was TV time, and, and especially after you came over at some of the trades. And, you know, you, if you had a decent game, you wanted to go on there and let people get to know you a little bit. Yeah. I enjoyed it every, every second of it. Yeah. And, and you're right about getting, you know, the fans to get to know uh, the players because, uh, you know, I certainly did. I can, you know, you know I remember, you know, the Mets and then, like, even, you know, the ex – I mean, the – the opposing players and stuff you got to know it was a great show for that. I mean, it was only what, like 10, 10 15 minutes at the most? Yeah, it wasn't long. It yeah. wasn't long at all. Uh, the show went a little bit, but then he'd have a couple of guests, and yeah, we weren't there very long. Just a yeah. couple of questions, uh, go over the game a little bit. That was about it. But, yeah. You know, the, the thing that's unfortunate about a lot of the professional sport is that people judge you by the statistics that you put up has nothing to do. And I tell people, you know, being a pro baseball player is not uh, who I am. That's what I did. Right. And I'm very blessed because it's opened up so many doors for me, but that's not who I am. Right. And uh, unfortunately, <laughs> there's still some people in New York that I'm still that guy that gets traded in the top fever train. They don't like me at all. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you got a black mark and against that's okay. you. That's okay. <laughs> Yeah. That's all right. You know, I, I'm, not, I'm okay with that. Yeah. A lot of things get written, a lot of things get said, and, and I, that's fine. Uh, 
I don't have any issues with that now. Uh, that's why I enjoy doing like the Mets fantasy camp and the Reds fantasy camp because all these guys that only knew of you and didn't know you come down there. They spend a week with you and they get to see who you are. So I've really gained a lot of friends just by going down to some of those camps. You know, I I went to the uh, Pittsburgh Pirates uh, fantasy camp back in 93, I guess it was. And uh, I totally agree with you. I mean, uh, you know, I still keep in contact with some of the, uh, you know, the Pirate players and, of course, the campers. You know, a lot of the campers I still keep in touch with. But, like, you know, um, I'm also I've I've written a lot of uh, articles for uh, Saber and everything. So a lot of the guys that I met at camp, I wrote, you know, their bio, you know, like Steve Blass and uh, Dave Justy and Kent DeColvey. And, you know, it's it's really uh, it's a great experience. I always tell people that's like, uh, I mean, aside from, you know, my marriage and, and the birth of my children, you know, fantasy camp is right in there. And I mean, sometimes depending on who's around, I'll say it was probably the best. <laughs> but <laughs> I'm not going to say who has to be, <laughs> who would be around. Yeah. But uh, you know, another thing I read, which I found very interesting, and I know we had spoke about it before, is that you're you're quite a singer. No, I just have a lot of guts. <laughs> well, I mean, you got on stage at the Lone Star Cafe and Cody's, and I mean, they're two. In institutions, uh, you know, for music and everything. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that? They were back at that time, uh, 1980, I went to Gold Glove and I did a call from a place called Cody's in New York, which is a country western place, as was Lone Star. And they said, we would like for you to come up with your band and headline a couple of days. And I went, well, you know, I'm really just having a lot of fun singing back up in the off season. I'm not really headlining material. They said, well, would you consider it? And I said, yeah, why not? <laughs> so we got our little band together, and I called, uh, I think they paid me a total of $3,500 for two days. And I called my uh, band. They all said, yeah, we, we'll, we'll do it. All right. The boys, I, I'll give you all the money. Y'all take all the money and we'll see what happens. And so then I called up Dave Thornhill, who was the lead guitar player for Loretta Lynn's band. And I said, Dave, would you come help sort of put this little band together? You know, you can, I'll give you the song and then you can put some music down and you can kind of be our band leader. And he said, well, why don't I just bring Loretta's band? And I went, and her band was called the Coal Miners and back in the 80s. That's when Coal Miner's daughter was coming out. Right. You know, they were like the hot band uh, for country music. And I said, because I'm only getting $3,500 and I can't afford uh, any of that. And he said, give us $50 a day and the whole band will come. Well, good night, man. They came into Lexington. We had a rehearsal. And we put their band and we headed to Cody's, about 18 of us. And we did two or three nights up there. Uh, the fire marshal was there every night because people were coming out of the woodwork and we were just having a big time. Uh-huh. And uh, we were filling it up and then we did Lone Star one night. I tell you what, it, it was a fun, fun gig. And our guys had a good time, but you talk about a bunch of rednecks coming into New York City. That's who we were. <laughs> <laughs> hey, and uh, also, you actually, uh, you played, uh, what did I read that you also sang with the Oak? The Oak Ridge Boys? What was that about? Well, uh, 81, when we went on strike, uh, and speaking of that, uh, my good friend Joe Bonzo, who is their tenor singer, has just got out of the hospital, so I want to wish him the best. Okay. Uh, we went on strike with them in 81. Uh, and, uh, when we went on strike in baseball, I, they called and said, what are you doing? When are you going back to work? I went, I have no idea. I didn't have any clue we'd be out for almost 60 days. Right. So they said, uh, well, we got a little trip. Do you want to go? And I went, sure. So I met them in Nashville, jumped on the bus. We had it. And we went a whole week just going around different places. We ended up going out into uh, playing a softball game out in Omaha. And then we did a couple of shows. And we just had a ball. It was <laughs> just so fun. So one night they got me on stage to sing a little song. And, and uh, have some fun with me, and, and it was just, you know, they're such good people. Uh, and I got up and I sing one, and 
Anchorage boys. <laughs> we still have a big laugh about that. So every time I see them, they say, are you ready to go tour with the boys again? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that had to be. But it was fun, and we remained dear friends. So yeah. that, that's the cool part about it, our friendship. Yeah. Now, uh, you also did some singing, and, and I've heard Johnny uh, sing before on, on TV and stuff, but you did some singing with Johnny Bench? Well, we do a lot of stuff together. Yeah. Johnny and I are hooked in with a couple of military charities, and we try to make it a point to do whatever we can to help raise money for our military veterans and families. And if that means getting up on stage and singing, we'll do it. Yeah. Uh, we see a couple of programs and we have fun and we're not afraid to make fun of ourselves and uh, Johnny loves music I mean yeah. he absolutely knows partial words to every song ever written Wow! and he, and he loves to sing and he loves music I mean more than anybody so he and I will get together and we'll get up and sing a song or so and, and it's all because we're not afraid to you know, we're, we're not advertising us. We're up there saying if this is a way to help raise money for our veterans, then we're going to do it. And, and, I, and I love Johnny to death. We've got a couple of events coming up pretty soon where we'll go to Camp Lejeune and we'll go to Florida to do raise money. And, and uh, the, the program's called Hope for the Warriors. And it is, and look it up, 91 cents yeah. on the dollars going to our families and veterans, and we're proud to be associated with it. Well, you know, I, I did look it up because, you know, we had spoke before and stuff like that. And I think it's great that you said 91 cents on the dollar because, you know, a lot of charities, uh, you know, with all the administrative costs and stuff, they don't even come close to. I mean, you're lucky if it's 50-50 sometimes, which is, you're right. which is sad. I, you're exactly right. Yeah. And that's why I tell people, you know, don't take my word for it. Do your own due diligence, which right. I did. Because if I'm going to give, I want to make sure that my money's going where people say it is. They run this thing. It was started by a lady by the name of Robin Kelleher. And her and some other wives realized that as their spouses were coming back from war, uh, there was a lot of changes taking place. And some of the families stayed together and some didn't. And they said, we want to try to make sure we can handle these folks. Because a lot of scars are not visible. And right. they started this program called Hope for the Warriors. Gary Sinise also is a big part of it and uh, I'm, I'm just I'm so humbled when I'm around these men and women because they laid it on the line so that I could have a nice career in baseball and so that I could continue to have uh, the freedom that I have. I'll not forget that and I'm looking around my office right now and I got flags and all kinds of stuff up there that you know just is a daily reminder to me just how blessed we are. Yeah no I, I totally on board with that um, now, from what I understand, uh, you, uh, uh, one of your teammates helped introduce you to your wife and you've been married, is it, is it 40 years now or, and, and I know that's a pretty good, <laughs> 40 years and I don't speak to that guy ever again. <laughs> <laughs> no, you don't. <laughs> no, you know, uh, Yeah. 
is uh, she's my completer, and it has really been a cool, cool journey. And I hope it stays like that because we're having a ball together. And she had a little notoriety on her own. How about telling us what she did when uh, when you met her? What was she doing? She was a Philadelphia Eagle cheerleader. Okay. And uh, she, had, she was also working as a waitress at the Playboy Club in Atlantic City. Oh, okay. Uh, she was never a centerfold or anything like that. She was just a waitress down there, bunny, I guess you call it. Right. And uh, I, even, I even met her and I... I grilled her on that. She had, she worked two jobs. She worked, at, uh, she was an interpreter because she's Spanish, so she was an interpreter at the welfare, uh, building in Jersey with her mom. And then at night she'd go down and she'd worked her way through college. She went to Rutgers and had just graduated from Rutgers College. She was a cheerleader the one year when I met her. And, uh, so yeah, it, it's pretty cool. She's a, uh, she obviously turned a whole lot more heads going into places than I did. <laughs> well, that's an important job. I mean, being an interpreter, like I think I, I don't know if you remember, but, you know, I work for Catholic Charities, so I work in uh, social yeah. work. And, you know, interpreters play a, you know, a, are a necessary element, you know, to uh, some of the stuff we do, because we deal with a lot of people that, you know, English is a second language and uh, or not a not a language for him at all. So, no, that's great. Yeah. Um, yeah, she's Puerto Rican, and, and uh, her first language uh, growing up was Spanish. Okay. Uh, she, of course, she doesn't have any accent, but when she goes back to Jersey, they think she has a southern accent. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's kind of funny. <laughs> now, um, yeah, hola, you all. <laughs> hola, yep. I, I, I only remember was Es Susana en Casa, C S Kun yeah, whatever Spanish one was. That was that was the extent of my uh my Spanish. <laughs> now um you know what it, it it was funny that um you know when I was doing getting prepared for this, um I re- and and I was actually sitting in the bar with it, but you were actually Closely involved in uh, that situation with Ed Ott and Felix Mion, and I. Yeah, I met Brother Rosie. Yeah. Uh, uh, the, the ground ball hit to me in short. It wasn't hit very hard, and so it, there was going to be no chance for a double play. So I just flipped the ball over to uh, Felix, and as he walked off the bag, Ed came in pretty hard, and and uh, Felix thought that he came in and kicked him. Yeah. And so Felix took a step back. When Ed got up, Felix took the ball in his hand and he smashes it into Ed and hit him in the face. And Ed turned just a little bit. And when I saw that it didn't really affect Ed Ott much, Ed Ott much, uh, uh, we later found out. And I later became friends with Ed because yeah. we took a trip. I'll tell you about that in a minute. Yeah. But uh, Ed didn't hardly flinch. And he picked Felix up and body slammed him. And I mean, you could hear it, collarbone breaking. Yeah. Just, and then Ed knew that he had hurt Billy, and he backed off. And I went over, tried to grab him. Well, you know, he's a lot bigger than me. He was, from what I understand, an all-American wrestler in, in college. Yes, he was. And uh, but but he was telling everybody get away because he knew he had hurt Billy. And uh, there was just a little jawing going on, but Ed. Even though that happened, he kind of made everything pass about it. Years later, we went to, from Philadelphia to Florida on bicycles. Uh, they had called the March of Dimes or Musker District, and they wanted a group of guys to do it. So Joel Youngblood called me, and I was like, yeah, why not? So me, Joel, Ed Ott, John Denny, uh, Joe Sambito, uh, Don Hasselback, and the Billy Fanatic, we all jumped on bicycles. And <laughs> we said, yeah, we'll do it. And uh, so Ed and I had been, you know, it, it, you talk about those things. And, you know, Felix, I, I've never seen Felix react like that at all. But uh, that's the first time he did. Boy, Ed just hammered yeah. him. Yeah. Uh, Felix ended up, his career was about over, but he did get well. And I think he went on over to Japan and played a little bit over there as well. Yeah, yeah, I would. I agree with you. It was, you know, from from a fan's perspective, and like growing up in New York and stuff, it it seemed out of character 
uh, for Felix to do that. But I mean, you know, situations cause people to act different ways. And I mean, if you get taken out on a hard slide, which he did, and Ed Ott being a big guy, I, you know, it's like a, uh, a knee jerk reaction. It is. And that's the way you played the game back then, though, too. Yeah. Those things were legal. You went in hard. You tried to stop the big guys and knock them. There's no telling how many times I got knocked down. You, you finally learned how to get knocked down and how to get your throw off and, right. and land so that you don't get hurt. Uh, it, but the game was, you know, you can't do that stuff today. But back then, there was an art to get, that, get rid of it. And I think Felix got upset because he wasn't trying to turn a double play. He was just walking off, but he was right. playing hard. And, you know, that's the way the game was played in those days. Yeah. No, no, I totally, totally agree with you. Um, I want to move on to, and, and I, I asked you this, this question before, but, um, you know, you were one of the most, well, obviously one of the smoothest fielding infielders of, of your time. Did you prefer playing on turf or grass? I mean, there was a lot of turf fields when your, your career was going on. Yeah. Yeah, I really did. Yeah, I did. I didn't like the turf so much. It just, I didn't like diving on it. I didn't like slides on it. I didn't like wearing spikes on it. Uh, and a lot of guys wear the turf stuff on it. But to me, the turf stuff, I didn't like those shoes because you slip when you hit the bag, especially if there's any moisture on them at all. Right. And it was just hard on your legs. And, you know, I you like it called the ball cup. It's true. You get true hops. You didn't care how hard it is, but you got true hops. But uh, I just like the natural. And, uh, and having said that, you know, you come up in 75, you got Iron Play, uh, Pittsburgh, Philadelphia, Montreal. Well, Montreal was Jerry Park when I first started. Right. And then San Francisco, when OJ decided to play football out there, they changed their their national turf to natural surface. But it was a miserable, hard place. The Astrodome uh, was, you know, so and they were all different kinds of turf. St. Louis was different. Uh, St. Louis, was, I like St. Louis. Uh, Cincinnati was pretty decent. It was a little hard. But Pittsburgh was tart. Yeah. It was a different kind of turf. And a ground ball that wasn't bouncing came to you like a snake. And uh, so I, I didn't like it at all. Yeah. So at least when you went to some of the field, of course, if you played Los Angeles, we called it Asper Dirt. Because mm-hmm. they kept it really low grass and really hard dirt. And the ball got through there quick. Then you come to a place like State Stadium, they kept the grass high and the dirt soft. So you couldn't drive it through that infield with anything, which didn't help me much as a ground ball hitter. But... You know, it's, uh, but I really enjoy playing on the national stuff. And, uh, I was fortunate that in the 11 years of the big league, I only missed twice because of injuries. Well, I missed six games one year with a hamstring, and then I broke my wrist one year. But other than that, I was very fortunate to stay pretty healthy. Yeah. Now, you're talking about the uh, surfaces, and I know I had told you before about, you know, I I had a conversation with Bill Mazeroski. I mean, I actually did his bio for uh, Sabre and stuff, and I remember him talking about, you know, the the lack of quality infield at Forbes Field. So when you say Pittsburgh was bad, it was kind of an improvement on, upon what he uh you know, what he uh, had played on. But um, I think you also had told me that you had a chance to talk with Bill Mazeroski. You want to share a little with us? Oh, I did. What a great guy. Uh, we did some an old-timer games or alumni event, something, and was sitting around. Of course, if you play second base, the standard is Bill Mazeroski when he comes to turn it a double play. And uh, everybody that played the game and he People that didn't play the game, Mr. Bill Mazeroski, well, yeah, he had a big home run, but he also had great hands. Yeah. So one night, about 10 o'clock, and he looked over at me, and we were sitting in the lobby. He said, come on, go across the street. We headed across the street to this little place. And got a little bite to eat, sat there. Next thing I know, three hours later, we just sat and talked baseball. Yeah. And it was one of the coolest things because a lot of times you see guys and you think, all right, they just go out and react. There's no preparation. They just are God-given ability. But sitting there and talking to him about how he 
late hitters and set up runners and turn the double play and hand position and this and that. And it was just so, for me, you know, it's like, all right, I'm getting a lesson from the master here. Yeah. And uh, the game was, all, I was already out of the game, but he's given me a really nice compliment on He said, uh, the only person he had seen that turned a double play anywhere near close to him was me. And uh, I, I was very, you know, proud and honored that he would say that because, uh, you know, growing up, that's who you want to be like. Boy, it's quick hands. And, and we turned it two different ways. Bill was a thick, uh, bigger than I was, and his real strong legs. He could keep those legs planted, and guys would slide into them and literally get hurt. <laughs> I was so light that I had to get rid of the ball and get off of my feet so if anybody hit me, I wasn't going to break an ankle or a left knee or something. So there's two different ways, and there's a lot of different ways to turn it, but anytime you're mentioned, well, you know, you say a, a gold standard. Uh, the good second baseman you played with in Cincinnati felt the same way. I know Joe uh, used to talk about, you know, the same type of uh, description as you did. I mean, that, uh, you know, Bill Mazeroski was like the gold standard for playing second base. But and Joe was no slouch either, right? Oh, Joe was a gold glove winner, and, and uh, Joe had really good hands. The only thing Joe did not have was a good arm. Right. So he compensated by getting rid of the ball a lot quicker. And, you know, he but he used that little bitty tiny glove, and he was just, he was so athletic. He would get the ball, and, uh, you know, I, for two years in Cincinnati, he was the best player in baseball. Oh, absolutely. Fun to watch fun to watch, get those MVPs and watch the way he performed and went out about the game. And, you know, Joe could have had so many stolen bases, but he only stole when we needed a run. And uh, you see guys now, they get on and they're out there for the record. How many they can get. Right. Joe could have done the same thing, but he didn't. He only stole base when we absolutely need to run. And the thing that was amazing is when he was going to steal, everybody in the park knew he was going to steal. The pitcher and the catcher knew he was going to steal. And he was still very effective. Yeah. Which which is incredible. I mean, you know, it's, yeah. I mean, I, I can't even add to that. Um, you played for some really good managers in your career, like Sparky and Joe Torrey and Don Zimmer and Vernon and Russ Nixon. Uh, who do you consider or who was your favorite manager that you played for? wrap this up a little bit, but um, there, I have three closing questions uh, that I wanted to ask. Like, what was your proudest moment in, in your baseball career? Do you have a particular uh, one? You know, Bob, I think, you know, there's a lot of milestones for a guy like me. I mean, there's 1% of the guys that play our game get to pick their own retirement state. 99% of us are told that it's time for us to right, leave. Right. <laughs> I think uh, the fact that having no scholarship uh, coming out of high school, uh, being told that I was not uh, a Division One type baseball player, and then three years from that, standing with Pete Rose in the dugout on opening day of the major league. Uh, I think that's probably 
You got 11, 11, yes, and you got 11 years of being blessed. I mean, that's that's quite a career. That's yeah, uh, I tricked them for a bunch, you know, thank goodness <laughs> for my hands. Uh, I can catch it a little bit. Yep. You hope that you treat people the right way, that they don't mind having you around. And boy, I think just the friendships that I've made over those years that have lasted even today uh, are very, very special. Yeah. Now, um, I know that you do, you, I mean, I, I read about all the things that you do, and I mean, you, you have a huge pile on your plate and stuff. What, do you, what, what are you doing? Uh, can you tell us a little bit about what you've been doing during your retirement? Or what are your... Well, when I first retired, uh, I headed up the state of Kentucky's anti-drug program. Um, and I really didn't know what I was going to do, but that opened up and... Uh, Martha Lane Collins was the governor of the state of Kentucky and asked me if I would do it, so I did it, and I enjoyed that for nine years. I went back into baseball for two years because uh, another governor came in. I worked for three governors. The fourth governor came in, and it was time for me to go. So uh, I went back into baseball. I coached the year and managed the year in the men's organization and loved it. And thought, okay, I think I could get back to the big league in a few years if I if I keep working at this. And then uh, a man by the name of Luther Deaton, who's the president and CEO of Central Bank here in Lexington, Kentucky, the locally owned independent bank, called me in and offered me a job. And in another month, I will have been here at Central Bank for 25 years. Wow! Which is my primary job is what I do. Uh, but. You know, Johnny and I are involved. We did a golf tournament for 40 years here in Lexington. We're involved with a bunch of charities uh, going around doing that. Uh, the biggest thing on my plate right now, though, is I have two 94-year-old parents, one with dementia, one with Alzheimer's. And most of my time now has been spent with them and uh, trying to make their um, the rest of their life uh, calm, peaceful, painless, and just try to get as much joy as we can out of it. So that's kind of where I am right now. But, you know, I've, I've been blessed. I'm a Christian. God's been very good to me. Uh, I don't understand why, because uh, I was a scoundrel there for a lot of years. But, uh, it is now the center of the things that I do. My wife and I are very active in our church. We realize that the closer that we grow in our relationship with Christ, the closer we grow in our relationship with our friends, our family, and everything else we do. So, yeah, it's uh, uh, I'm just sit back every day and look out. The sky's I'm 12 years cancer free. Yeah, I got cancer 2010, and I'm cancer free. All my tests were good three days ago. Great. So great. I wake up, the grass looks a little greener, the roses look a little prettier, the sky looks a little more beautiful, and and uh, I'm hoping that I don't pick off anybody like I did a few years back when I was playing the ball because there's some people that are still taking <laughs> nasty shots at me. And, and uh, I just pray uh, that they uh, got nothing going on in their life that's that bad that they got to pick on a poor guy like me has been out of the game for 40 years. So, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'll tell you, God bless you, uh, Doug, with... Uh I, I used to manage a program for Catholic Charities that I dealt with seniors. And, uh, you know, I've uh, met a lot of people with dementia and Alzheimer's. And and that's that's not a I mean, I haven't faced it directly like a family member. You know, hopefully I, I don't. I got a mom that's like 86. But, um, you know, it's I've, I've heard people tell me about and, and just what I saw when I was you know, heading that program and everything that, uh, you know, like I said, God bless anybody that, you know, 
helps make you know life a little easier for people that are going through that. It's a that's definitely a, you know I, my hats are off. My parents are at a, in a place here, so uh, I went on the board uh, last a few months ago. And my job, is when I walk in there and see these young, old, all kinds of age people that are dedicated their life to help people like my mom and dad have a, some kind of quality of their life in the latter years, uh, man, my hats are off to them. So I'm going to spend a lot of time, as long as the good Lord will let me, doing what I can to make sure that as people get older, that life in these type facilities uh, can be as good as it can get. So that's yeah. kind of a goal that I have right now. Well, that's that's a fantastic goal, Doug. Uh, no, really. Well, anyway, Doug, I want to thank you for being on my podcast and thank you for, you know, doing it a second time with with that. But uh, <laughs> you enjoy the rest of your day, okay? I'll do it, Bob. Uh, thank you. Thanks so much for having me on. Oh, no problem, Doug. Thank you so much. Uh-huh. All right. Bye. The phrase, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree, is meant to indicate how children's qualities and talents are similar to their parents. So to honor my dad and his influence on me concerning baseball, I named this podcast, The Baseball Doesn't Fall Far From The Tree, in his honor. If you have any questions about today's program, you can contact us via email at rvhurte at gmail.com. And if you're interested in our new book, Intelligent Influence in Baseball, you can also send us an email and we will let you know how you can order it. In the immortal words of the famous baseball journalist, Red Smith, baseball is a dull game only for those with dull minds.